Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Happy Monday. What is up, podcast fam? Today, my guest is a special friend, founder, and former CEO of Dream Products LLC, Dream Water, a natural sleep aid available in both two and a half ounce liquid shots and powder form. You can take with or without water. I definitely suggest with water. Honestly speaking, I think any of those supplements without water, just straight powder, a little bit disgusting. But anyhow, I interviewed David building Dream Water, selling Dream Water. He took this company from idea to fruition all the way through acquisition, sold it for close to $30 million and is now working on building a life he loves. David comes from a family history of entrepreneur after entrepreneur. I had the pleasure of working with David for close to a year down in Florida, helping him while he was still building Dreamwater. David's an incredible guy, incredible story. Thanks for coming on the show, David. Excited to have you on. Thank you. So for those that don't know, I met David through his brother and ended up working for David for probably like, I don't know, maybe maybe a year, almost a year. Moved down to Florida and got to spend some quality time with David. And actually, David brought me to a, a local CrossFit gym, and CrossFit's in a, a lot of trouble now. Did you see that? I did see that. Uh, I think it's better not to comment on these type of really terrible things. But I think what, what your audience might want to know is that this old man beat the shit out of you in a workout or multiple workouts, so you couldn't keep up that, with me. I don't know if that's true, but... It, you misremember it's then. Possible. You misremember. I, I had bad mobility in my hips. That's that was it. Fun we'll blame it on that. I yeah. got like, that was the strongest I was ever, I think ever. Like, I remember I, my sister came down to visit once and she's like, whoa, you look so strong. The workout was great. That gym was great. Yeah. So I want to take it back. And as I was telling you right before we started this, you know, I, I've always looked up to you as, as an entrepreneur, someone who built an incredible business and has a unique perspective on building a life and a business. You come from a, an interesting family of, of entrepreneurs. Maybe we could just take it back to how you ended up getting involved with Dreamwater. Take us back sort of before. And I guess let's go back to college. During your college years, were you looking at, in your mind, were you thinking of starting a business or anything like that? You know, I thought about this a lot, uh, having come from a first, I'm a first generation American. I'm a very big and international family. And I grew up with entrepreneurship just being normal. It's what I always experienced and saw. And I always gravitated toward my dad and uncles would do like, we had a lot of family gatherings, again, a big family. And I would tend to sit even as a little kid and just listen to them talk. And I think that that was really formative for me, my brother, which is how we know each other, my twin, and others in my family, especially in my direct household of my family, that we have so much entrepreneurship, not just at my dad, but across five uncles. They all had their own business? Well, a lot of it started because my dad and one of my uncles started a, a chain of stores called Perfumania. 
And then they had another fragrance company that did uh, fragrance brands like uh, Periella's, Paris Hilton, and Guess. And then that was six households that were running between both businesses. And then one part of my family went on to buy, restructure, and grow duty-free Americas. That's one part of my family. And then another part of my family stayed in the uh, fragrance business, among other business activities, and had a lot of successful exits after that. One of my uncles had um, Ed Hardy, True Religion, BCBG as like the big brands, and he sold those. Another one had you know brands like Katy Perry and Adam Levine, and he sold those. So uh, again, we come from a very big entrepreneurial family, and it's big on both sides. My mom's my mom has one brother. Again, all first generation American. My mom has one brother who his side of the family with his two kids is incredibly successful building a huge computer cell phone and computer parts distribution company to Central and South America and the Caribbean. And so I've just grown up around it. So so I think that it was natural for me to gravitate toward it. And when I went to the Michigan Business School, I actually, this was, I was in Michigan from uh, 98 to 2002 when the dot-coms were starting to go and what have you. And I remember that as a sophomore living in my fraternity, I started my first dot-com. I made an online greeting card company. That was a big deal back in the day or I was running this online greeting card company and I, I was running it out of my fraternity house in Michigan. And this is before we had all that connectivity and all that stuff. So it's always been something I gravitated toward. Even in when I was in, I did my JD MBA at the University of Miami right after Michigan. And uh, even there, I started two or three different businesses while I was taking a full load in school and what have you. I always gravitated that way. It wasn't that my family pushed or forced or anything like that. It was just something that made sense to me and it occurred to me that those were good ideas and good ways to spend my time instead of just, you know, hanging out and drinking and partying and whatever else you do as a, as a 20 something year old. Did you do any of that too? I did. I did <laughs> a lot of that too, but in a responsible way, most of the time. Got it. But you didn't have like a pressure from your family. Like you had to start a business. No. And I find that very interesting because my dad is very academic. He might be one of the smartest people. He is one of the smartest people I know. He might be the smartest academically, certainly. And he never really pushed us. I think it was more like lead by example. And it made sense to us. We liked it because all four of us in, in his household, the, the four kids, each one of us is a pretty accomplished entrepreneur. My younger brother now has, fast forward to today, has one of the largest vertically integrated cannabis operations in the state of Massachusetts. My uh, sister has a really high end and huge event planning business here in South Florida that is even right now able to weather the storm. She's pivoted and doing some online e-commerce flower stuff. I mean, it's very, very interesting. And then obviously my brother... My twin brother in Mexico has been very tapped into the entrepreneurship world and community across a variety of different topics for a very long time. I think when I look at this from like a social sciences perspective, I think it's just because this is what we saw, what we experienced in the home. Maybe put a different, easier way. If your dad golfs, there's a chance that you golf, but my dad doesn't golf, so I don't golf. <laughs> if your dad boats and fishes, there's a good chance that you're going to boat and fish. Yeah. But since mine didn't do that with me, I'm not handy and resourceful like that. And I don't understand boating and fishing like that. So I think a lot of this is you're able to map behaviors because it's what you know, what, you, what you're what you used to. That doesn't mean that you can't come from any walk of life and become a doctor or become a golfer or become an entrepreneur. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's probably a propensity, if I had to really guess, to go in certain directions based on what you've experienced growing up or inside of your home or inside of your tight you know, family or social circles. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting too, because I know a lot of people who their dad, their mom has a family business and their plan, like since they're in high school, college is, oh, I'm going to go into the family business. So it's interesting that you guys all sort of went out on your own and decided to start your own business as, as opposed to being like, we're going to stick in the family business. Well, because what the family business is has evolved so much. 
you know, the first 20, 25 years, my dad and one of my uncles primarily was were running, well, all of my uncles where they were running, you know, these fragrance businesses. By the time that we became of age post-college to go to that, a lot of them didn't exist. Anymore. We weren't running Perfumania already. We weren't, there was a lot of things like that. So, so the opportunity was sort of gone. Yeah, to some degree. But I think that that was a good thing. I think that we wouldn't have been as well-rounded and pushed and understood as much about what it really takes to start something, grow something and develop something without sort of being pushed. If, if we had the comfort of staying in a, a nice family business, we might not have pushed ourselves that hard. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it in either direction. Let me be absolutely clear. When you said, let's go way back, I just jumping in with a conclusion that I think that you model behaviors, you're open to certain risk tolerances based on what your life experience has, has brought to you starting from a young age all the way through. Yeah, I love that. That makes sense. So how, how does Dreamwater come about? We had made an investment into a small financial services company in New York City. I've lived in New York several times, even though I'm from Miami. I've lived in Manhattan several times in, during the course of my life. And um, we had made an investment as a family into a small financial services company that had like trading operations and some investment banking operations. This is right before uh, the 2008-2009 meltdown and, and depression and crisis. And, and so we lost all our investment there. But while I was attempting to be an investment banker, uh, sort of before the world stopped 11 years ago, my eventual co-founder, Vincent, came into the office looking to raise some money. But it wasn't enough for me to make money as a, you know, from a commission perspective to do all the work that I know that needed to happen by way of even the business plan, putting together the deck, doing all that stuff. And he didn't have the money to just play a flat fee, let me do all that work, and so on. But more importantly, what happened was I took it home with me. It was this eight-ounce sort of poorly packaged, kind of syrupy kind of thing, but it was called Dream Water and was all natural. And I took it home with me and I tried it. And I do have a sleep issue. Uh, I was 29 years old, but I've had it generally for most of my adult life that my brain doesn't shut down so easily at night. So even if I'm tired at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, I won't fall asleep for hours later uh, because I have thoughts running through my head and I can't quiet the noise, uh, which is both good and bad because a lot of awesome thoughts happen in those hours where you're not distracted and you're really in your head. But it's also very frustrating when you can't sleep. Sleep in general, positively or negatively, impacts every aspect of your life. You want to talk about nutrition? I would immediately have a conversation. Well, what's your sleep like? You want to talk about uh, fitness levels, muscle recovery, and all that. You need sleep to do that. You want to talk about stress, weight management, right? You're eating unhealthy, and not enough people think to themselves, let me understand sleep. Because in America, especially, it's not like this all over the world, but in America, especially, we are taught hard work and hard ethic, and I don't need sleep. I'm a warrior, and I don't need it, and I'll sleep when I'm dead. Problem is, is that over time, your performance, your mental aptitude, your, your capacities and all that, it does get diminished. I mean, that's just science and fact. And there's very few humans that are outliers to that rule, even though we all think that we can get by with five or six hours of sleep. It's not that I'm passionate about sleep, but I had this issue. There's over 70 diagnosed sleep disorders. This was my sleep issue in the moment and for most of my adult life. And so when I took it home with me, I tried it like at nine o'clock at night on purpose. If I tried it at midnight, I might have just fallen asleep because I was tired anyway. So I on purpose tried it. I want to say, does this thing really work? And I tried it like at nine o'clock. By 9.30, I was out. And I woke up the next day, probably at six in the morning without an alarm clock and physically feeling better than I had felt a long time. This was in the spring, summer of 09, 2009. And mind you, when I say that physically feeling better, it's because if you ask me from like the fall of 2008 to like, you know, well into the start of 2009, what is your job? I say, I have a front row seat to the end of the world. Because there was no shortage of people needing to raise money, recapitalize, whatever they, they needed to do or companies that needed to do that. But there was very few ways to actually generate that because the markets were frozen. Unlike this pandemic that, was, that is, is really a function of a slowdown in, in human activity. Here in 2008, 2009, 
it was a financially induced crisis, right? So things like you're seeing now, like liquidity uh, easing and all that stuff, whatever, that was the remedy for all this stuff. But at the time, and, and most of maybe the kids that are, or people that are listening to your podcast are not going to remember, but at the time, we were having conversations about entire industries being wiped out literally overnight. But for if tonight the government doesn't step in, you're going to have the entire auto industry go out. You're going to have, and it was just swaths of industries that were really, really hammered. And so that's what I would describe. And that mentally is a terrible existence. I have a front row seat to the end of the world. But good sleep, one night of legitimate eight, nine, 10 hours of legitimate sleep was able to really reset me. And that's what got me started on this path of dream water. Real quick for your audience, dream water is a, at least in its original version, is a shot, a two and a half ounce shot of just a lightly flavored natural water that helps you relax and fall asleep. And what got me going, and to your point, right? So how do you get into this whole process or whatever is that I went from that mindset of I have a front row seat to the end of the world to I was excited to wake up and crack this code because I had never seen something like a water that helps you relax and fall asleep. But there's so many things that are liquid based that wake you up, right? Be it caffeinated sodas, caffeinated teas, or just, you know, things like that, right? Coffee, energy drinks, and so on and so forth. So I had just never seen the opposite. And logically, I said, my original thesis was there has to be more people like me. And it's enough of a niche. It's enough of a segment, which the numbers are staggering. It's over 70 million Americans that have some sort of sleep issue. And I think the number is probably higher if you really look into it. I said, there has to be other people like me that could really benefit and that don't want to take drugs. And I don't want to pop pills and all of that stuff. And that curiosity, that excitement was what got me in action in terms of a Dreamwater. And I eventually left the investment bank and started Dreamwater in earnest because I couldn't keep justifying going to the office when at one point I found myself doing like, you know, a huge amount of my day, even in my mental capacity was geared toward I was thinking about Dreamwater. So that excitement that I want to crack this code, I want to see if we have something because I didn't go into it with like, this is the best thing that has ever been created. And it's amazing. I went into it like a working thesis. Like, I think I have something and I wanted to test it out, bringing it to market. How do you do that? So because I have never seen anything like Dreamwater before, in the summer of 09, if I was talking to you and well, well into before, really up until launch points, if I was going to talk to you about it, I made you sign an NDA, which is insane if you think about it. And they're not I've never seen anybody sue one. Like, it's very hard. But for this false sense of security, I would make you sign an NDA yeah. just to talk to you about Dreamwater. And you'd say to me, well, what am I signing an NDA for? And I'd say, I can't tell you until you sign it. Right? What a weird thing to do. And I, would, I probably did that with vendors and potential vendors and things, whatever, also. But then we realized the United States of America, mind you, the internet wasn't, from an e-commerce perspective, Amazon you know, e-commerce was not what it looks like today. And so we're sitting here saying, well, the United States of America is a very, very big geographic place. So... To simplify, we basically thought to ourselves, well, the basic premise was we want to fish where the fish are as a starting point. So if I said to you, Dan, I want you to buy me a Coca-Cola or a bottle of water, in your mind, where would you go? Mm, CVS, department store, um, or like a gas station. More often than not, except for you, the answer will be, yeah, a convenience store. You know, I'll go there. But if I said to you, go get me a, a stomach medication, you're going to say CVS or Walgreens or Dwayne Reed or whatever. And so sleep aids is not something that you'd say, sleep aid, let's go to the convenience store. So I'm just giving that by way of background to say, well, what that little exercise did for us was refine with the premise of fish where the fish are was refined that we needed to, to launch in drug, right? Not even necessarily Walmart, Target, whatever it was, launch in drug. And then when we thought about the geographies and I had roped in my younger brother who eventually became our head of sales, a friend of mine, Adam, that was in marketing and obviously my co-founder, Vincent, who slotted into the COO role, three out of the four of us have lived 
Vincent and Adam were from New York, grew up there and all that stuff. And then I've lived in New York a bunch of times. So we understood New York. We understand its importance. And even without living there, what we said was, well, once we bring this product to market, the stupidity of the NDAs is going to go away. So in terms of like, obviously we could launch in Miami, that'd be our home market. But we said, let's go to like the major market because the entire thing that we were, that we wanted to understand for ourselves, not for investors, not for anything else was, do we have something? That was the entire premise. Like, do we have something and what do we have so we can iterate? So when we started to look at all that and say, well, where do we launch if NDAs now don't matter and we're coming into the market? We said New York. So when you put New York and with the idea of putting the city that never sleeps to sleep. So that's our messaging. That's how we were thinking about things at the time. And we were able to think about that because we were thinking about New York. If I thought past New York, even things kitschy like that would not come to mind. So when we centered on let's launch in New York and really give it a good, a good go. So it's New York and drugstores. The answer of where you need to go to launch was evident. It's called Dwayne Reed. At the time, it was independent. It wasn't a part of Walgreens. And so that's ultimately how we figured out that we wanted to launch in New York and go to Dwayne Reed. And when we had Dwayne Reed as a target, then it was about being resourceful and understanding and pushing to all of our four networks. How do we get to Dwayne Reed the right way? But again, it was a roadmap and it was this, these sort of metho methodological steps that we took logically well-reasoned that went from here to here to here to here that ultimately led us, we're going to launch in New York, Dwayne Reed, and what else can we do behind that? And that allowed us to take this huge swath of land called America with so many cities, with so many retailers, with so many retail outlets and channels. And we were able to sort of bring it in and really stay focused and concentrated. And that's how we were able to start to bring Dreamwater to the world. You guys raised outside money? Yeah, we never had a war chest of cash. And my father participated in every investment round that we did. All the investment rounds that we did were, were from end of 2009 till some point in 2012. Uh, in total, it was a little less than 6 million bucks that we raised, but it was not in one shot. I never had more than $2 million in the bank, which is not a lot for a consumer product pushing into real world retail. I never had a lot of money and I certainly never had a war chest that I can afford to make a lot of mistakes or go big on branding and hope to God it resonates. At the time when you were first starting, like ZQuill, there's obviously a lot of people I know. I don't know all the names, but I know there's other companies that have now made like uh, oh Neuro something. That's like a large water that you drink. There's a lot of competition, obviously, in sleep relaxation, sleep aid, etc. When you first started, like obviously companies like ZQuill, they have NyQuil, etc. They have unlimited amounts of of funds to go and market, etc. What what was like the market landscape at that time? Well, ZQuill didn't exist. NyQuil did, but ZQuill didn't. ZQL came to existence because all they did was decouple basically everything that is an over-the-counter uh, sleep aid, uh, which is primarily dominated by the big companies, Barkin Gamble, Johnson Johnson, and some bigger mid-sized mid companies or smaller companies, but bigger than certainly startups. It was a sleepy category to some degree. And the category doesn't have a lot of innovation. Even if you look at the sleep set today, uh, it's all different ways to market this active ingredient called diphenhydramine. But I wasn't so focused on that and I wasn't so intimidated about that because one of the things that I understood almost empirically right away was that you have to run your own race. You have to have well-reasoned, logical enough thought processes like I just laid out how we figured our launch plan, right? And sort of run your own race. And, and, and to illustrate that point, I'll say that it is so odd to think that this idea that has never existed in the world, this liquid water that will help you relax and fall asleep could exist. But we launched in mid-December 2009 with Dwayne Reed by February, Dwayne Reed did, did us the favor of bringing a second sleep shot, not even a sleep beverage like you referenced Neuro, which didn't exist at the time either, and so on and so forth. They literally brought in another sleep shot 
So that meant that there's an entire other entrepreneur without knowing what I was doing or how I was doing it, whatever, that was literally on a parallel track. I beat him by two to three months. Thankfully, our data was infinitely better than, than theirs. So we had staying power and all those things. But without getting too much into a tangent, to answer your question, I think you have to run your own race. So obviously, my natural reaction, I'm 29, 30 years old at this point, And I'm looking at this this thing that I was working on and so excited. I was making people sign NDAs about whatever. And some other person in this country was on a parallel track to me. And yes, immediately I was like, oh my God, what do we do? Oh, you know, and I'm very nervous. But when you do that, you take your blinders and you allow yourself to, to get distracted. And I'm going to use that word on purpose. When you're distracted, it doesn't allow you to focus on what you need to do and your own execution and the, the development of your own ideas. So I, I kind of say run your own race, which is you keep your blinders. It doesn't mean that you don't take off the blinder every once in a while and kind of pay attention because I believe that you can learn a lot from your, obviously your competitive set and, and what they're doing and how do you improve your offering, your proposition, your messaging, and any number of, of tasks. Maybe they, maybe if theirs tasted better than mine, I would have been able to task my team internally. Can we make ours taste better? And so on and so on and so on. And so I think it's very important to stay focused, run your own race, but obviously with some amount of paying attention. and. I was paying more attention to that than I was the Johnson Johnson and Procter and Gamble's of the world, uh, even though those are more, much harder to compete with because they have unlimited human resources and financial resources, or relatively unlimited. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think that's great advice to to run your own race. You launched with Dwayne Reed, correct? Yes. What was that like? Like you went from idea, you think you have something, you're launching with with a a major chain. What was that feeling like? What was that experience like? My joke, and this is the first time I say it, especially in a recording format or whatever, I've said it verbally to people, but my joke is, and I would joke about it a lot in the moment, that if I was ever going to write a book about this experience, the content of the book would vary based on whether I ever wanted to work in this industry again or not. Because the truth of it is, without getting into any details, Dwayne Reed almost, it wasn't Dwayne Reed, it was one primary person in Dwayne Reed, our buyer, that almost killed us before we got started for two or three or seven different reasons. So I would always say that the first like several chapters of my book, even after a nine year journey and experience, would really be focused on that initial craziness and difficulties with Dwayne Reed. So anyone who has like a product idea and a lot of people do, they're like, oh, if I can get into that store, if I can get into that chain, if I can if I can do that, then I'll have this. It sounds like that was almost your not necessarily your thought process, like them will have a business, but you were thinking, let's launch with them. This will be a great launching point. Can you share anything that like like, why wasn't it the experience that you anticipated? We had or... a fairly detailed four or five or six page term sheet with like all the program elements and all that stuff, whatever, that the buyer effectively disregarded, forced us to work with certain distribution partners that never paid their bills, never replenished the stores. You know, it was all these things that was that was happening. And then there's obviously the commitment of the financial, the financial components that we committed to doing read on that we weren't getting. We had to pay them, but we weren't getting what we had agreed to. So it was things like that. But But I would say this. Our idea wasn't about getting, and as a general statement, but it's very accurate. It's not about being in these stores. Like so many people get excited that they got in. It's about how you're in these stores. And that will vary by product and proposition that you have in that store, right? So I've never seen shampoo sold on the front ends by the registers or anything like that. But I have seen energy shots and I've seen sleep shots sold on the front end very successfully and gum and candy and chocolate and what have you, right? There's a reason why stores look the way they look. The idea, though, when you're approaching these stores is, again, not just getting in. It's about how you're in those stores based on whatever your product or category is. And for those listening that don't have a consumer product proposition, background or journey of their own, 
I want you to analogize the things that I'm saying to any business. If you have a tech platform, an app or whatever, there is parallels to this, but instead of calling it Walgreens, call it the app store. I'm making that up, right? Whatever that means to you as you're hearing this and, and experiencing this interview, try to adapt this to what you're thinking. Because again, it's not about how you're in the app store, it's how you're found on the app store, right? I'm just trying to create a distinction. And so that would be sort of one big thing that uh, that I would caution people. But here's the other the other component of it. I launched in 2000, like really 2010 was our first operational year uh, in market. So we launched in 2010. In 2010, Instagram didn't exist. Neither did, I don't, I'm not sure if Twitter existed. Uh, Facebook wasn't the Facebook that you understand and know today. It wasn't the marketing platform that you understand it to be today and so on and so forth. So the real only digital marketing that you used to do back in the day conceptually, the basic blocking tackling, not getting creative was uh, SEO, which never worked because everybody would promise you the moon and sun, moon and stars, and it never worked. And they always told you you have to run it for four or six months to see results. And then you'd run that, spend all that money and you know nothing would happen. And then the other part was Google AdWords. That, that was our, our digital marketing uniform. And if I couldn't attribute uh, sales in the right way, which is very hard to do from digital to offline because you don't control that customer journey, you don't control that feedback loop, the attribution of your digital spend wasn't very good and you weren't able to see it. Plus at the time, I was so focused on making our, our proposition successful in the real world that I didn't really care about, and we weren't really on Amazon until like 2011, 2012. And Amazon wasn't what back then even what it is today, you know, and so on and so forth. And I really wasn't focused on e-commerce. The only reason why we had a, a direct-to-consumer platform, drinkdreamwater.com, was because with the New York focus, people would come to New York, find it, really like it, go home to Florida or Kansas or whatever, and didn't have a place to buy it there. So the only reason why I even did a website at all, besides the informative side of it, an e-commerce enabled website, was because I wanted people to be able to find it because I knew I wasn't in all the stores. And even when I pushed into Walgreens, I still wasn't in all the stores. And when we pushed into Walmart, I still wasn't in all the stores, so to speak, right? It wasn't as ubiquitous as a Coca-Cola. I wasn't as ubiquitous as a five-hour energy. And so really the website was just to fill in that if somebody found it somewhere, wherever they found it and wanted to rebuy and it wasn't in that store or they couldn't make it back to the Walgreens, that there was this thing. But the website was never that big of a business for us, uh, not certainly until many years later. The positives for as we sit here in 2020 and look backwards is that if I had started Dreamwater like a year or two later, I probably would have been a lot stronger on the digital side of the equation because there was more opportunity and tools and it was still nascent enough that you could make a real tangible impact and a real tangible business for yourself. The key to all of this, though, is learning, right? So in every step of the way, including as we were evolving over nine years that I was operating this business was I was always with a learning mindset. It was always the frame that I did it. I didn't stick to my ideas and thoughts as fact. I was always willing to let, number one, data tell me the story. And number two, I wanted to learn. And I can't learn as much by selling through a Walgreens because I don't control that customer and I don't control that customer interaction. Even on Amazon, I don't control the customer or the customer interaction, but there are some tools on Amazon. But the holy grail of all of this, and remember my entire thesis here was, do we have something that resonates from the very beginning all the way through? And so it was really just a thesis. I wasn't married to, I have the best product that has ever been created in the world. I was married to learning. I was really intent on learning and seeing things that I either knew or didn't know and how do I evolve and adapt and put that into our proposition and put that into our strategic thinking. And what you have today in a direct consumer world is that you control that customer, not just from a financial perspective, but from a learning perspective. And as we went into sort of to the second phase of our business in 2015 to 18 before I sold, 
that customer feedback and interaction, I'm not just using lip service here, that customer feedback and interaction was very important to informing our product development strategy, our innovation strategy, which is beyond product development, and so many of our marketing strategies and whatever. It was all based on, or a lot of it was informed by the consumer and the feedback that I was hearing from the consumer. And so I just wanted to level set that, that to me, all of this should be about learning because if you're able to listen and set up the listening parameters correctly, it should impact how you think about any aspect of your business from production to operations to marketing. It doesn't just have to be in, in, in business development or product development. And it'll allow you to iterate bigger, better, faster with even more insights rather than just starting something and hoping to God it goes well. So you're at this for basically 10 years. I'm curious, what was the high and what was the low for you over the course of the, the 10 years? And I'm sure there were many, but if you had to pick like a, a high and a low, what, what would you say it was? Yeah, it was nine and a half, maybe a little less than nine and a half years. But uh, I would say the entrepreneurial journey, especially if you're in that number one seat, right? If you're in that number one seat, it's a very lonely journey. It's lonely because your family and your friends and your coworkers, they don't really understand what it's like to be you and what kind of fortitude, resilience, perseverance really requires because most days suck. I don't mean terribly sucked. I mean, they were just more either, you know, nothing days or negative days. I always felt like with Dream One, I was taking one step forward and two steps back. So I would say that was the bulk of it. And one of the things that when I look back at my experience that I wish I would have done better was being more present in the moment. Like the day that we sold Walgreens, which is an incredible, what I've come to understand is really a incredible experience. And most people in this world will never get a chance to do that. When I sold Walmart, you know, I walked out of their offices with my brother um, in Bentonville, Arkansas, Northwest uh, Arkansas, and it was just another day for me in that moment. I just didn't know better. And I think that that served me a lot of good things because I wasn't intimidated walking into a buyer meeting and all that stuff, whatever, because I, I didn't understand the, the magnitude of that meeting, the magnitude of that opportunity. But equally, I didn't celebrate those little wins along the way, which would have allowed me to answer your question by saying I had a lot of good days, Right. I was always focused on what else do we have to do? We have a million things going on, tight team. So it wasn't until later on in this process that I, I was able to be, and as I evolved in my 30s as a human, I was able to, to allow myself to be more present and conscious. And I think that, that that is something that if I could have gone back, I would have done along the process. Obviously, there's days like that and you see some things and you just, we got a ton of PR, every celebrity, every musician, uh, entire sports teams. You know, Zach Ertz right before the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl the night before was asked, what do you do? the night before the biggest game of your life. And Zach Ertz literally has a quote that said something like, uh, this is a tight end for the Philadelphia Eagles. He literally said something like, I'm going to watch some fill the film, take my dream water and try to crash. Like that's what he does the night before the biggest game in the entire world. Not paid. Not paid. Philadelphia Eagles were the first professional sports team because they reached out to us that we'd work with. And I just took all that to be kind of normal. Like, it, like honestly, like every musician and celebrity that you know, Every sports team, to some degree that you know, they all ended up consuming dream water for a variety of different ways. And even that, I wasn't present. I wasn't like, ooh, you know, like, that's so amazing. You never took a step back and was like, damn, I'm proud. Like, that's awesome. Look what I did. And also because I guess I have the Jewish guilt thing built in or for any number of reasons, I never rested on my laurels. But I also never, it never grew big enough. It wasn't profitable enough. It wasn't exciting enough on a day-to-day -day basis, financially speaking, or where I felt that there was enough monumental things that I could point to say, wow, that's a really big moment. That was really good, uh, which is probably limiting my upside happiness feelings about it. Like I can relate to that a lot. Was it that you were always chasing what was next and you never, you never like really took a step back and was like, just took a step back to reflect and be like, 
look at all we've accomplished and you were always focused on if only we can I don't know what the the revenue was like but if you were like if only we can do 2x or doing now then we'll be a better business I never really just for whatever it's worth and I won't get into too much of a tangent I never really focused so much on the ultimate output as the goal I focused on making sure that the processes or the the things that the means to the end were always more important to me than what the end looked like cuz my mindset was always that if I do enough of the right things that the means if I do enough of the right things, the output will be bigger, bigger, better, and better than anything that I could ever project. So I wasn't so focused on, I have to hit this revenue number. I was also privately held. Uh, we had no bells and whistles on our equity. It was one class of LLC units, and I had no debt. So there was no gun to my head that I had to do something by this month, by that quarter, or what have you. But to answer your question sort of at the end, and which I think is very important, the day, and this is odd, right, because I said I just... I've evolved and developed. And I remember, you know, the deal was announced on May 3rd, 2018. We were wired the money on May 30th, 2018. And I happened to be at a cannabis networking slash conference event where one of my good friends was speaking, he was on a panel. And he had invited me down to South Beach to listen to him and just be around this event and what have you. And I remember getting a phone call from my mom saying, have you looked at your bank account today? And I said, no, I have not. And uh, she says, well, you should look. And I looked at it and I said, that's cool. I put my phone in the pocket, in my pocket, and I went about my day. So the financial exit, that opportunity, and you don't have to believe me, I have two or three friends that can corroborate that story. But what was the absolute most amazing experience for me was this was very much a family for me. A lot of us had been together at a minimum five plus years. Look, then all these years later from a year or less than a year of interacting, we stayed connected. We stayed close, right? That's always been one of the most important things to me, that coupled with the fact that we would get so much consumer feedback. What kept me going was not because the financial side of this equation on an operating basis, on a day-to-day basis, was not lucrative for me. It wasn't making money you know, tangibly and all that stuff. The thing that kept me going was understanding because I would get the consumer feedback because I was listening and I was paying attention, the impact that we were having on so many people's lives, which is what happens when you give them good sleep. So it's a combination of that. And with my own family, that would be the highlights when I would see these impacts, when I would get these emails. The ultimate was in that time period after May 3rd announcement, before we got wired the money, I wrote letters to people, to my staff. I actually had negotiated in my deal a pool of money that was not meant for my shareholders. It was meant for me at my discretion to give thank yous. Whether you were a W-2 employee, a consultant, a mentor, or whatever, I had discretion for this pool of money to, to give the thank yous. But it wasn't even about the money. With the people that I wanted to, I wrote letters, not more than a half a page or a full page. I wrote letters to them of thanks and appreciation with specificity. Why did I thank and appreciate them? And delivering those letters was one of the emotional experiences that I will probably remember very granularly for the rest of my life. That impact of acknowledgement, not the giving of the money uh, and using the right words and capturing what that relationship meant to me in the moment, I think was for me certainly, and I think part of it was because it was for them too the best part of this entire experience. It wasn't giving back you know, shareholders money or return on their money. It wasn't that I put all this money into my pocket because my life didn't really change. Uh, thankfully, I have very supportive and helpful parents. It was really about that and that impact that we had and acknowledging that. And that was really maybe the best experience that I had. I also really, I'm a part of this group called Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. Uh, it's a global organization with chapters all over the world, which is actually how you met my brother originally. And the other people that I really wanted to share in the win with was my direct forum. You have a forum. We were eight, seven or eight people at the time. And that first meeting that we had, because we meet monthly, that first meeting that we had after closing the deal, they knew my entire experience 
my entire life for most of my dream warrior experience and journey and just celebrating that win with them again being present in the moment was also an amazing experience it sounds like you evolved a lot over the years obviously with with age and experience you'll grow but did you work with anyone like an outside coach ever i know you're deeply plugged into eo and very involved but i know a lot of entrepreneurs who who work with coaches or some form of of a coach to help them take those steps back and recognize the wins etc or this is just sort of David's natural evolve, evolvement as, as an entrepreneur? I would say to everybody, it can't hurt to have a coach. But how you get to that coach, or I'm going to use the word mentor, uh, varies. And I say that in whatever it is that you're doing, be it your entrepreneurial journey, your professional journey, because you're allowed to have a career, you don't have to be an entrepreneur. You could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be a teacher, whatever it is. I think it is incumbent upon you to find your mentors, to find your guidance, to find people who will care about you and your journey that will guide you. You could do that through a paid coach. You could do that through a mentor. You could do that through your family. And again, I'm blessed enough to have multiple members of my family that you could never pay to be your coach that would give me the time of day to mentor and guide me, not just mentor me, guide me, what have you. One of the guys that became an investor, a small investor in us was the former head of sales for Johnson Johnson in the U.S., and uh, to this day, he's still a friend. And he was an incredibly pivotal mentor for me. Again, he was also an investor. He was also, he would come down and do these monthly or every six week meetings with us for the first couple of years that he was involved. All of that formed what was so helpful for me. And it's even crazier to think that somebody that was at one of the highest levels that he could be at Johnson Johnson would understand how to talk to young kids, so to speak. I was the elder statesman in Dreamwater at every step of the way almost you know, 30, 31, 32 years old, what do, what do I know? Most of my team is in their early to mid twenties, you know, and we're selling to the biggest retailers in the world. And yet this guy, Frank Maoni was able to communicate with me and with all of us in a way that that was like a master's education on steroids. And it's about seeking out those relationships because some of them, I could tell you 27 others that didn't pan out exactly like that. There was others that did pan out, not necessarily to that level, but that has much an impact on me. But he just translated so well, and we learned so much that I would just say be relentlessly resourceful and unapologetically selfish about reaching out to people, even if it's for the next year or for the next stage of what you perceive to be your career or your journey, and even in your personal life, right? If you're going through a marriage, what should I expect? If you're going to go through a divorce, what should I expect? And seek out the help to communicate with somebody who has an experience here that might resonate with you that can help you at least understand what you're getting yourself into or prepare you for success or minimize the potential negatives and be unapologetic about calling them, texting them, asking them for things. And then when they tell you no, let them tell you no. But until such time, keep going and be selfish about it. It can't hurt. And if you think that going the paid coach route, I highly suggest it because what else do we do in life that wouldn't have a coach? When we went to the CrossFit gym, was it just me and you deciding to work out on our own? No, nah, absolutely. There's a coach. And then when we think that we're lifting the weight right, they say, no, tuck in your elbow, bend your knees more, straighten your back. And that coaching is preventing you from getting hurt. It's helping you get better form and get better. And so in every aspect of your life, conceptually, a coach makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, it's weird that um, a lot of people, like we have teachers all the way through college, grad school, etc. I mean, most people through college, but then after college, a lot of people stop taking time to learn, stop taking time to work with coach and expert, etc. And why so, is that then? And why is it? I don't know. People get content, I think. People just get comfortable in their situation. Yeah, or I know it. I'm good. And by the way, I'll analogize like this. And I think in my 
entrepreneurial relationships and network and what have you, I think coaching becomes even more important the better that you are. And you don't have to believe me. Does LeBron James have a coach? Absolutely. Right. Wait, also, just to that end, he probably has numerous coaches. He probably has a coach for stretching, a coach for or for weight training, a coach for cardio, a coach for basketball. And if somebody like that who's at the absolute top of their field, none of his coaches are better than him, none of them, right, still needs coaching across a variety of disciplines, why wouldn't that apply to literally everybody else in whatever chosen profession or field that they have? But think about it like that. And what I see in terms of people evolving in the, their entrepreneurial journeys and as humans and whatever is that as you get older, maybe a lot of my maybe 40-something-year-old friends that are entrepreneurs or on a second or third gig or whatever the case might be, they almost institute a coach because or they get coaches to teach them how to live their lives. Like, help me meditate. Help me work out better. Help me stay disciplined to my fitness regimens because if I'm not healthy, I cannot be fully dialed in to my entrepreneurial process, to my work, to my kids, to whatever the case might be. And ultimately, Dan, really, it has to do with mindset. If your mindset is such that I am great, and I was much more arrogant about this in my 20s and in my 30s, that I don't need people and I'm going to be a self-made man and I'm going to do all these things. It was really only into my 30s that I started to appreciate having my dad as a resource, having my uncles, having other family members and friends that I can talk to, having the Frank Meonis of the world. Up until that point, I was an arrogant little shit who said, I want to be a self-made man. And in that mindset, I couldn't accept coaching. I couldn't accept guidance or mentorship. If you adjust your mindset to say, I can always be better, even if I'm great today, I can always be better. That in and of itself, that mindset, if it's authentic and real, will allow you to have a growth mindset, a learning mindset. To not just say Dreamwater is the best in its current iteration and not iterate it at all. If you looked at my office, when Dan, when you were there, I had a wall of iterations of what Dreamwater looked like, sounded like, and even then we shifted into a powder format and into all these other functions. We had a wall of this stuff that just showed you the evolution along the way. Because if I was content with it and said, this is really great and whatever, I would have never evolved that thing. I would have just said it's great and not gotten the benefits of that evolution. I love that. Just going back to coaching quickly. I don't remember what athlete it was. I read something about how much it was like a mega athlete, but it was about how much they spend on coaching, recovery, diet to perform at their absolute best, like what they're, let alone their routine, but what they're spending to have other experts help them be at the top. I'm a big advocate for coaching. I've worked with numerous coaches over the last several years, and I found it extremely helpful. And I, I also think people should never stop really learning after school. I think that's when you should become maybe more hyper-focused and learning in certain th things and seeking out mentors and in those specific categories that you want to dive deep well, in. Well, sometimes you call me and I probably say one thing per time that we interact that seemingly resonates with you. You're like, oh, damn, you know, whatever. I think, right? I mean, you tell me. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've called you numerous times before. Obviously, like I feel like every every few months I'll, I'll text you. I'll say, Papa Bear, what's going on? You said something a little bit ago around a lot of people would see, okay, you're doing this company for nine years. You're the CEO of it. You're probably raking in tons of cash. This is probably the perception. Entrepreneurship is sexy. Entrepreneurship is a grind. And I'm curious if you if you can speak uh, a little bit around your journey. I know probably the last time we spoke, we even had a conversation around, you had mentioned, you know, you grinded, grinded. And I worked closely with you for several months to know firsthand that you grinded, you hustled even in the later years of the business. A lot of people view entrepreneurship as like this rocket ship, this sexy thing. You're going to go and build your own business. I'm curious if you could just speak a little bit about the grind. I think that one of the things that doesn't get discussed enough um, relative to that 
grind is that for you to be able to, and I'm somebody who got divorced. My daughter, my first kid, my daughter is the same age as Dreamwater. I started Dreamwater right when my ex-wife got pregnant. 2013, I was a month shy of five years married. I had two little kids. My daughter wasn't even two. My son was uh, 10 months old and I, I went through a divorce during this whole journey. I wasn't paying myself for the first five years. I'm just trying to level set some things so that what I say, you know, has a little bit of context to it. Uh, I didn't pay myself anything for the first five years. And I went through a divorce where she got more than half my stuff. That wasn't that much in, in that moment. You know, when you go through all those things and we hear as a backdrop to all this work-life balance, and how do you do that? You just asked me about grinding and I'm coming back to you saying, yeah, but then we hear these words like work-life balance and all that stuff. But one of the realizations that I had is that this is really a what I call a family affair. And what I really mean by that is that you need to be, in my opinion, proactively communicating to the stakeholders of your life, be it your spouse, your kids, your parents, your social circle, like your friends, your gym membership, your, whatever that looks like, and including also your employees, right? Because when your employees leave and you're still grinding there into whatever, they don't know, they don't necessarily care, whatever. But I think that there's certain communications that you have to make to these stakeholders in your life so that you're level setting their expectations of you and it minimizes the discord and the fighting that happens after the fact. In other words, my mom would always be complaining, why don't you ever call me? Right? Why don't you ever call me? And I could fight with her about that. Ma, I don't pick up the phone and call anybody. And I would, I would do all that. But a better approach to it would be, Ma, I just want you to understand what my life looks like right now proactively before there's an issue, before there's a problem. And I think that that would minimize the friction and the, the curiosity because she at least did me the favor of communicating, why aren't you calling me? How many of my friends didn't communicate that at all? How many of my, did my spouse ever tell me he should, and, and the same thing with your spouse, right? So if you're proactively communicating, I have a big meeting coming up. I'm probably going to be long hours in the office. If I say that ahead of time, right, I'm not coming home at 10 o'clock at night and getting bitched at. And then I'm frustrated. You know, well, where were you? Why didn't you come home already? I made dinner for you. It's cold and all these things, right? When you do that, you're proactively controlling the narrative. But more importantly, what you're doing is you're giving them an insight. Don't assume that they know what your life is like. I said, being the number one spot, not number two, not number three, but being that number one spot is very lonely. And you need to enroll the people that matter in your life. And even the social circles, if, if I ignore my friends for a year, right, it's not so easy to just reintegrate into that social circle, right? You know, you have to do that. So I think what's really important to allow you to grind and grind is relative to all of us, right? What my grind looks like is different than yours and anybody else's. And it's to your degree. But I think one key part of that is enrolling the stakeholders proactively, and it'll minimize the friction behind the fact, including acknowledging that you don't know. The second part of that is my mindset. And I keep coming back to that. I think if you take away something from this, it's, it's all about your mindset. My mindset was such that the reason why I worked so hard is because I didn't want to finish this journey positively or negatively and not felt that I could have done more. So think about that. If that was my mindset, that's what allowed me to forego so many other things in my life, which was not necessarily, I'm not advocating for that. I do think that there's, you know, the work-life balance is a different, you know, conversation, but that mindset, that filter that I had that I just, not that I didn't want to be outworked. I also didn't want to be outworked. That was a big part of it too, but I didn't want to finish this thing positively or negatively. And that's it. I could have done more. And that's why I was able to grind that way for so many years because I didn't want to look back and regret it. You had said that you didn't take a salary for five years. So I'm curious, you're like in your, at the time, mid to late 20s? 29 when I started, 29, 30. Okay, so later 20s, into your 30s, you're not taking a salary. Was there any point along in those first five, and six? And I got divorced. Okay, 
So was there any point in the five, six, seven years where you're like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like I could be making so much money elsewhere or you were a man on a mission and you were committed to it and you wanted to see this thing through. We stagnated. We had our highest highs and lowest lows of Walmart in 2013. And by the end of 2013, I really thought I was going to lose the business. I lost my co-founder, Vincent. I lost my head of operations, uh, head of logistics, Marilyn. I lost my head of finance all in one swoop. It was literally a, you know, I think Vincent just hit his breaking point when we had these this stumble with Walmart and uh, and I lost them. And one Jerry Maguire moment of Vincent saying, who's coming with me? And they all left, but with no purpose in mind, right? Like with not, not to anywhere, just they left. And that was very disheartening and it was very, very difficult. And at that point, I, you know, obviously, because there's, there's a thing, an economic term called an opportunity cost, right? So it's not what you're foregoing in terms of salary today. It's sort of, it's not just that, that you're not making the money. It's the opportunity cost. It's not that I wasn't getting paid. It's also what I could have been making doing anything else. But for a very long time, I was really this man on the mission. I'm going to use your words. I was a man on a mission, but it certainly was a gut check time then. And a lot more after the fact, you know, in the years that followed where that was my filter. I said, at some point, I can't just be committed to this. I can't just be committed to this at all costs at the sacrifice. Thankfully, I had a nice outcome at the end and an exit. But yes, that was very present to me that I could have been doing anything else. And I have a tremendous amount of experience and skill set, even well into the process without a happy ending, just in process that I felt like I could have, I could have been doing a lot more. And it did weigh on me. And it was a big consideration set sort of in that second stage. And the only reason why I was able to kind of be okay in say those first five years is that I didn't live my life recklessly. I didn't have the nicest car. I didn't have the nicest house. I didn't have those things. Not It was sort of by design and on purpose, but and I didn't, I would go out and party, but I didn't get a table every night, you know, or whatever those things are. So by the time I started this, by the time I had the opportunity to, to really go out there as an adult and start my own business, I did have some savings. I did have some cushion that I can I can lean on and fall back on, something tangible, not a thousand bucks. And I also had very supportive parents that no parent needs to needs to take care of their kid in their thirties, but mine were always there, both emotionally, practically on a day to day level. My mom would help me with my kid pickups after my divorce every day that I had them. Uh, she allowed me to be the father that I at least mentally knew that I wanted to be and not feel guilty about it, uh, her involvement in my life. Again, be selfish and enroll and, and resourceful and enroll everybody around it. But they also provided some financial support well into my 30s. I do have to acknowledge that as part of this process. When you were building the business, I'm sure you had big aspirations as it relates to like, I'm sure you saw a, br a bright future financially, right? Like you're in business to make money. U ultimately, it's one of the things why you enter into a business. Um, obviously not the only reason, but it is something that's top of mind for obviously anyone who's who's starting a business. Was there some toy or something at the end when you sold the business where you're like, I want to go get that or no? No, I think unfortunately, and it's something I bitch about in my EO group or otherwise, I don't have hobbies. Um, so you need a hobby coach. Yeah, yeah, because I <laughs> because because this whole idea of work life balance, if I probably had some things that I really enjoyed that really spoke to me, whatever that might be. Uh, outside of work that might have that coupled with, you know, my growing family and whatever might have gotten me a little bit more balance in my life, but I don't have that. So no, I didn't need to get like the, I'm not a biker and that I needed to get the nicest bike, you know, or, or, or just something like that. But also, again, I understand and I recognize that my parents were very strong and very great providers. So I wasn't nouveau riche or anything. It's not like I had that money. They had it, but I have not wanted for anything tangibly in my life. So it wasn't like, yeah, I now have money. Let me go get a Ferrari. Uh, or let me, you know, go do those things. Also, I'm not a car guy. Uh, so that's an easy one to go get, but I, I just don't care. I have two little kids. I, I take my nieces and nephews and other and their friends and whatever, destroy my car. I don't care. 
right? And, and But if I had a Ferrari, I would care, you know? And I also wouldn't be able to transport kids. And I think it's important to acknowledge and note that if it was financially driven for me, of course, I had this idea that if we do enough of the right things, remember, I cared about the means, not the end. Uh, from a mindset perspective, not on purpose. That was just how I'm wired. If I cared about the money, I, like my co-founder, like my younger brother, like my team members would have burnt out at some point in this process. If I was dreaming about this exit, that unrealized expectation, because I'm a nine plus year success, not a three to four year, not a one year success, not an overnight success. I don't know that I could have lasted nine years because you would have had this juxtaposition of this expectation that, man, at some point I'm going to have these riches, this financial reward, but when you have that expectation continuously not met until one day it was met, you're just adding this, even on a subconscious level, this burden to your, to your mind, to your ability to think and process that will do you a disservice and that will ultimately cause burnout. It cannot be about the money. It cannot be. This is too hard. It's too hard. Uh, it's too uncertain and it's too complicated that if it's just about the money, some people make it and God bless them and they're great. But more often than not, it's not a straight shot up journey. It's a series of this where it's probably a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and then you come up a little bit and, you know, it looks like... Yeah, it's like a turbulent, a very turbulent plane ride. What's next for you? What are you working on now besides trying to uh, change the uh, the Jewish day school life uh, for your kids? Well, again, <laughs> what Dan is referring to is that I care about my community and I have the flexibility of not having a nine to five. And um, I'm able to, and I'm actually doing this interview out of my kids' uh, school, which is a K through 12 school here in, in, in North Miami. And I think that for reasons that is too long to explain, you know, having these kinds of opportunities and it happened like this, it's, it's sort of been, you know, a grind for me now for maybe five, six days at this point. But I find it so awesome and challenging. There's so many variables to a PKT all the way through 12,000 kids, 300 teachers. And how do you deal with this uncertainty uh, brought by COVID and the, the actual and real risks that exist in, in spite of the protests, in spite of all the opening up of of the world and the economies, this, these risks exist. And how do you do that? And ultimately, most importantly, it's triaging the COVID, but how do you really reset? I think that the best things that I'm hearing and doing is obviously you have to triage your personal situation, your professional situation in this pandemic style situation where the entire world came to a halt. But the ones that will make those leaps and bounds progress is not the ones that turtled and sort of sheltered themselves and said, oh my God, oh my God, I hope that I'm okay. I'm hoping I'm okay. Okay, I stabilized this stuff and now what? The ones that will always succeed and win, and I don't mean just financially, just in terms of progress and, and leaps made, is those that have a growth mindset, an evolving mindset. And unfortunately, like, look, in my grind, I'm looking at Dreamwater. You can step in with fresh pair of eyes and give me notes, thoughts, ideas that I might not have been considering. And I think that happens a lot here where you have a fifth, this school has been around for like 50 years. There's a lot of set ways to do it. You have a lot of politics involved, which I hate politics. You have a lot of parents and, and opinions because it's a private school and people that want all different things. How do you satisfy that? And I find that to be incredibly difficult and challenging under normal circumstances. It's even more so in COVID. Uh, and I would say that instead of just looking at COVID and saying, how do we triage COVID and how do we come back in August, you know, hopefully to school or what does virtual look like evolving the virtual process or the virtual learning? The biggest thing that I'm trying to impart here, I just need to triage it first in whatever way I can make an impact here is, but let's reimagine what the school should be and look like. Where I'm sure that they somebody thinks about that every single year and in every single moment, but you never do it because it's hard. But COVID has given us, and this is going to sound crazy, in my opinion, again, this goes back to mindset, it's given us an opportunity to create. Now think about what your possibilities, and, and analogize what I'm saying right now to literally anything else that you as a listener is going through. 
we're looking at COVID and my mindset is what is the opportunity to create? What can we be doing differently? Because everything should be on the table right now. Everything. I have four whiteboards in a classroom that we've designated and turned into a little war room that I cannot stop writing on. And I don't have more whiteboards. I keep having to erase and do because it's so complex, but I want to hear even ideas that would never be in your, in your perspective ever. And when you can start to think like that and coach like that, even if that in and of itself isn't there, it's starting to open up your eyes. Even those that are entrenched in the educational systems and, and all that stuff, it's starting to open up their eyes. And sometimes it takes a coach or somebody like me to, to, to come in and rattle that. Maybe in five or 10 years, and selfishly for my kids, my kids' friends, my nieces and nephews, and my community, um, we will have taken this very difficult moment in time and turned it into an awesome resetting and reimagining of what a Jewish private community school should look like across all aspects on a go-forward basis for the next 10 or 50 years. And that's a pretty awesome undertaking and a pretty awesome challenge, I think. So it sounds like school is what dipping in, in your hand and as the next thing for, for the time being. Yeah, I mean, look, we've had to invest a series of, you know, we've had to invest the proceeds. We've had to invest the proceeds of the sale. My younger brother has one of the largest cannabis businesses in Massachusetts. I help him a ton on a variety of different matters. I've consulted for a, a variety of other people. I was working with one company uh, pretty extensively uh, up until January. Uh, that was an airport travel retailer. Um, so there's been a lot of things. Nothing that has really grabbed my my sense of passion and purpose and like, yes, let me dive into that. And I'm missing that. I'm really frustrated and nervous, but at the same time, I'm cognizant and I'm, I'm giving myself the opportunity to not rush into something because I know how hard the grind is. I know that when I commit to something, say to the degree that I do of dream water, I'm all in and I know what that means. And I'm not just going to jump into a, an opportunity that I'm not overly excited about, if that makes sense. So you do, at some point, you plan on starting another business? Uh, of course. And helping other people start. So, well, and also when you invest and you allocate some of your funds, it is to spur that next generation. And it's, and it's to, to, to make some bets on people, ultimately, that you believe in. Um, I do want to touch on one thing before we sort of break here. Um, you asked me, so what did you buy? And I think it's relevant to the times that we're living in today to say this. My business almost stopped after three years, three to four years of like an absolute all in with me and my entire team. And I had the best culture I will probably have ever had from a corporate perspective. You never got to experience that, that I will probably ever have in my whole life. Not by design, not on purpose. I didn't understand the importance of culture academically, but my entirety of this commitment, this investment of time, effort, money, and everything almost hit the grind there. The only reason why I was able to survive past that was because I always implicitly just kept my fixed overhead under control and tightened that up. It was always tight. I didn't wait for some situation to happen and then cut the bloat. And that is also how I live my personal life. I have no debt in my personal life, not even a mortgage, not nothing. I've never had it. I'm not saying that that is bad. I think a certain amount of debt is good, depending on what you're doing with it and what have you. But the key and the key message relative to maybe the times that we're living in today is that, look, when I got divorced, because my fixed overhead wasn't that much, right, and things like that, I was able to shift down and hard and let myself have a moment for another day. And when I came into this moment where I now have more money than I've ever had for me personally, it wasn't about spending it right away. I understood the importance of cash flow, not cash. Cash dwindles. And when you have a lot of cash, you say, yeah, I can afford the $250,000 Ferrari. Why not? Right? But my mindset going into the sale wasn't just that I had a good life. It was I understood the importance of cash flow, better said positive cash flow. 
And so I immediately wanted to shift into not buying the nicest house and the best house or anything like that. I wanted to shift into income producing properties, right? I didn't want to just plow it into a house that is still going to cost me money and not generate me any cash. And so I think about, you know, my mindset was already dialed into cash flow and understanding the importance of keeping your fixed overhead costs low. Look, it's not a crazy, never going to happen chance that you could have something like a pandemic happen and literally overnight, the world stops. And so whatever your plans were, whatever you had in mind, whatever your growth trajectories were, and however it is that you're doing, you got stuck there. And if you're able to maintain your fixed costs under control and focus on cash flow, not cash, cash flow, you can survive for a better tomorrow. Or actually, I shouldn't even say for a better tomorrow. You can survive to get to tomorrow. And, uh, and I think that that's very important. And to whoever's listening, that that's ultimately why. It was in part because I wasn't, I've experienced a very nice lifestyle so far, but it was also because I understood the importance of cash flow and having lived it, having experienced it in my personal life and in my professional life. And when COVID hit, I was able to be the primary. I had my, it was just my kids with my ex-wife and her whole family. Not my ex-wife. My ex-wife was the caretaker for her whole family that got COVID right at the beginning. It was me, my two kids and the housekeeper for the first six weeks alone. My family couldn't help me or anything like that. And I was the primary parent teaching my kids with the homeschooling scenario. And I was able to do that because I had set up all these other parameters of cash flow and freedom and flexibility that it afforded me the opportunity without freaking out. Everybody had to do it. Everybody had to do it, but I didn't freak out about it. Was that a topic you taught your kids in uh in homeschool? Uh no, not yet. They are cash flow. Yeah, yeah, they, but they are they are exposed to the the ideas of work and, and business. I think it's important to expose them at young ages. I do believe in mindsets with them, and that's for a whole other conversation. But one of the things I did during Corona, because I was also their teacher, whatever, is I got them a what's called a three minute journal. I ordered it on Amazon. Uh, anybody listening with kids, or just even for yourselves these gratitude journals. So when you're stuck at home with a routinized plan every single day, it forced these little journals where moments in time at the end of their days where they would ruminate on their day. And it, you know, it asked you to write down three things that were good today, you know, and all these things. So it's about mindset. And I'm trying to instill that at a young age in my kids, um, that even when you're stuck at home in Groundhog Day with the same freaking routine over and over, I literally bought them a gratitude journal where they had the journal at the end of it, most days, not every day. And it, those gratitude journals are very, very good, even, especially in for adults. Uh, it's not journaling like I'm writing Dear Diary, whatever. It's It forces you to reflect. And it could just be that I had a nice meal today. You know, I had a pleasant interaction with my wife. I had a pleasant interaction with my kids or whatever. And enough of those things that you're acknowledging out loud and consciously to yourself, that will shift you to a better, more positive mindset. So things like that are important. Yeah. I love that. I want to wrap up the show with one last question. Before that, I guess I do love what you just hit hit on with the importance of cash flow. If you're sitting on cash and you don't have the cash flow, it will eventually, you know, the the cash will go. I sort of learned that the hard way. There was one year where I had an amazing business year and um I don't want to say I spent money like an asshole, but I lived very freely thinking that this was going to just be the new normal. And I learned very harshly that that's not the case. And years following have been a grind. And, um, you know, going back to sort of the analogy used of it being a very turbulent ride of ups and downs. Once we sort of hit the up, I was like, oh, we can only go up from here. And it wasn't the case. And I didn't go out and buy anything crazy, but I spent a good amount of money on like traveling, vacations and things of that nature. I'd put it more in the category of experiences. I don't regret it, but lesson learned for sure. Like, the cash dwindled, you know, so super important to, uh, to just be thoughtful. I, I've become a lot more thoughtful with where I spend money, how I spend money, and also 
like you're saying, investing and having the cash grow as opposed to getting a new pair of sneakers that is just going to, you know, depreciate. You know, we do get taught that as kids. Everybody learned about, was it the ant and the grasshopper? The ant spent all summer preparing its house. Was it the ant or what was it? It was an animal that spends its whole time building its house, getting ready for winter, and the grasshopper is outside enjoying the summer days and, and prancing around and enjoying the, you know, the fields and the grass and what have you. And then comes winter. And then the grasshopper needs the help from the from the ant that built its house to go and shelter and all that stuff. So we learn about these things in different ways, even as little kids, right? We all heard a fable like that along the way, or the tortoise and the hare, right? Um, yeah. So we do start learning that at all ages. We're just not present and conscious to it. And until you really experience it, Dan, I think that that's what you just said. It would probably otherwise not make sense. But when you experience it, and my whole thing is don't experience it. You heard me say, now if you heard Dan corroborate it in different capacities, just Take it as a fact. It's true. Yeah. I mean, it's always hard. I feel like oftentimes to really learn a lesson, you do need to experience it. You need to feel the sting. I had a podcast the other day and we were talking about how, you know, you want to get knocked down, but you don't want to get knocked out. But you don't really learn when things are going well. Sometimes things are going too fast. It's it's hard to take a You're invincible. You're a genius. Yeah, it's it's hard to take a step back and and really reflect. Even like you said, it's it's hard to even appreciate when things are going so well to be like, wow, like, fuck, I'm amazing. Or this is amazing. It's amazing how much we accomplished in such a short period, long period, whatever it may be. But when things are going bad or when you feel the sting, when you feel the burn, that's when you really can take a step back and be like, what went wrong? What did I do? How can I change this going forward? And I feel like that's that's when you learn. And my entire perspective, I know I asked you if you got a toy after you sold your business, nine years of, of hard work, you know it's your money. You deserve to do what you want with it. But in the last year and a half, two years, my entire perspective on cash, work, money has like completely evolved and changed. And I'd say much, much smarter now, but wasn't just because like I read a book. I mean, I experienced making, having an incredible year and then spending the money on things as opposed to investing the money where I'd probably have a lot more now. So with that, my last question, uh, my show is all about facing adversity, building your dream life. With that being said, what would be your bits of gold on how to build a life you love? I mean, we covered it here over the last hour. I think the key to all of it is doing the work on yourself. And I think for you to be able to progress in your personal life and in your professional life, it's about accountability. It's about accountability to yourself with yourself first. Keep the finger pointed at you. I can probably not very easily change my own patterns and behaviors and thought processes and mindsets. I almost certainly cannot do it with anybody else. So when you're going through life and when you're going through all these things, if you have the mindset of saying, what could I have done better? Even if it worked out great, what could I have done better? And especially if you don't get the results that you expected. If I said hello to you in the morning and you come back to me and say, fuck you. Well, that's, you should have just said hello. That would have been my expectation of that communication. And if that was your response to me, instead of saying, wow, Dan's an asshole. The only thing I could really do is sit there and say, what did I contribute that a hello would have been met with a fuck you uh, as opposed to a hello back. And just for a stupid example, but that's what I mean. Keep the finger pointed at yourself and focus on how you can continue to evolve and adapt. We've talked about the, the, the benefits of proactive communication. We've talked about, you know, the, the wanting and the needing to be more present, you know, to, to your circumstances for the good and for the bad. And I think a lot of that just has to do with, I don't care if you have Dreamwater or an app or, you know, a, a restaurant or whatever it is that you do, uh, whoever's listening, it's, it's, it's focus on you, focus on your evolution and keep the finger pointed at yourself. Because when you do that, it says, what can I do to be better, a better leader, a better father, a better spouse, a better son, a better brother, uh, and all that stuff. Just keep the finger pointed at you 
that should lead to a better mindset and you should start to see progress, not monumental, but you should start to see progress in all aspects of your life with your coworkers, with your subordinates and all that stuff. It's not about them. It's about what can you do to be better? What can you do to improve that interaction? What can you do to improve that situation? And that's how you can grow. Love it. Where, where can people get a hold of you, contact you if they want to get in touch? You can post it in, you know, in the copywriting underneath the video or wherever you post the video. But my email is david.lekach at gmail.com. I'm David period Lekach, L-E-K-A-C-H on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. So reach out. Do not be shy. Be relentlessly selfish with your resourcefulness. And worst of all, I don't respond or I say no. But best of all is I say yes. And I say one thing that might have helped you or I make one introduction for you that might have helped you. And it was better than not reaching out at all. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. This was awesome. <laughs> Love you, little bear. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Bits of Gold. We're growing. We're growing. We're growing. More guests, more awesome stories, more bits of gold, more inspiration. Thank you for listening in to another episode. Hope you enjoyed that one. Please like our pages subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and make sure to tune in. I love your podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.